0: I'd like to introduce a legend himself, my guy, um, fourth columnist and writer, Julian Mitchell. Yeah.
1: What's up? Yeah. So I'm gonna keep the energy up, that's like the number one rule with me. We'll do it one more time. What's up? Yeah. You. All right, so many beautiful people in the room. This is amazing. Shout out to JBL and the Harmon Store for opening up this venue and allowing us to have this event here, this conversation. Um, Also, just wanted to give a shout out to all of you because I know there's a lot of people in here who are creatives, who are entrepreneurs, who are people who are finding your way and building things and doing things that are really important, that really matter. And I just wanna give my respect and my salute to you because I know how hard that is and I know what that takes and the sacrifices that you make. So give it up for yourselves one time for that. So as you mentioned, for for people who aren't familiar, my name is Julian Mitchell, Uh, I'm a Forbes columnist. I've been with Forbes for three and a half years now. I started out uh, for a year and a half covering music, media, and entertainment. I had a column called The Code, and it was really into getting to the mechanics behind many of the most disruptive and innovative leaders across music, media, and entertainment. And then from there, I started Get Paid to Be Yourself three years ago, which is a series that really profiles dynamic creatives and entrepreneurs who have built business models that are rooted in who they are. And uh, starting out with that, and we're about 20 installments of that series and at this point, uh, transitioning into entrepreneurs. Um, So covering disruptive entrepreneurs and startups who are redesigning industries. So within that, uh, covering a lot of CEOs, uh, what I call the new creative class, like the people who are really shifting the paradigms and making those things happen. Cool, so uh, definitely check it out. I cover a lot of people who are in these different spaces, so if you're looking for insight, information, or or the blueprint, that's really what I use that platform for. Cool, so excited for tonight's conversation. I'm sure all of you are familiar with Jamel. She's an incredible journalist, voice. Uh, She's always used her platform to be honest, to tell the truth, to be bold, to be fearless. Uh, She's been at ESPN uh, for a number of years now, and she's just continued to evolve and take ownership of her platform and her lane as a voice uh, for our generation, sitting at the intersection, too, of sports, culture, lifestyle, politics, really encompassing the whole thing. So let's give it up for our very special guest tonight, Ms. Jamel Hill. Do they have our mic? Oh, you got it. So let's sit here. See, I don't want to like make the mistake before (laughs) we get started. Um thank you for being here first and foremost. Um, and one thing too, congratulations on being honored as the NABJ Journalist of the Year. Can you give it up to us? incredible honor and definitely well deserved. Um, And your commencement speech too, which we'll get into, uh, had a lot of great, great gems in it. But obviously a great place to start, right? So we saw the announcement today with the NFL about, for for those who aren't familiar, so the NFL just uh, created a new quote unquote, say policy where uh, players will be fined, teams will be penalized for any players who do not stand during the national anthem, right? officially, Uh, yeah, this is just just trying to sum it up. Uh, So from there, I remember seeing a clip exactly a year ago, ironic enough, uh, you and Michael Smith were speaking about when the NFL or or an anonymous group of owners uh, considered Colin Kaepernick an embarrassment to the NFL. Um, And your response was, which I definitely agreed with, was basically saying that way of thinking to see somebody who's standing up for a positive cause, equality, and justice, to have that way of thinking, considering him an embarrassment is actually an embarrassment. To think that way, um, and how the NFL tolerates a lot of other things, right? From domestic violence or you know substance abuse, things like that. So now, fast forward, seeing this announcement today, what are your thoughts and your and your take on that? And how do you think people should be looking at uh, this new uh, news that came out today?
2: Well, leave it uh, to the NFL. They are quite adept at bringing missile launchers to fistfights. Um, That's (laughs) kind of what they do. It was Mm -hmm. heavy-handed. It it was clear that they're trying to capitulate to a certain crowd. And the unsexy story is that the ratings declines, the interest in the league that has dropped, which, by the way, started before Colin Kaepernick's protest. I um, have less to do with protest or any of the controversy that has been generated by um, the the protest during the player anthems and has everything or during the national anthem. It has everything to do with viewing habits You know, that's much less sexier to say um, They're having a hard time connecting with the, uh, with the younger fan base uh, as you all know People are glued to Netflix and other right. streaming services, and suddenly spending three and a half hours to watch a football game in a sport that still can't tell you what's a catch doesn't seem <laughs> quite so appealing anymore. <laughs> no, no, so they're the facing thing. a lot of, of issues, and even you know now that we're in this information age where we know so much more about CT, right. head trauma, concussion, that also has <laughs> had a, a significant impact on how people feel about watching the sport. So I say all that to say is that this is their way of showing whoever they felt like they needed to show. Maybe the person in um, in the White House so that he would leave them alone and stop talking about the league. But I'm sure you can set your watch to a clip that's coming soon of him right. saying, "See, I got him to change the policy. Yeah. He's going to take credit for it. So thank you, NFL. You have done exactly <laughs> right. what he wanted you to do. Absolutely. And made this easy um, uh, for him to, you know, claim a victory. And you know, if you're a player right now, um, this is about suppressing your voice. Right. And more importantly, it's about people in power showing the labor force." Who's in charge? What they probably resented about, and still resent about Colin Kaepernick, is that he was able, with just a gesture, to put them in a position of not only being uncomfortable, but also uh, drawing attention and awareness to that dynamic of where you have majority white fans, all white owners, black players. And so, It'll be interesting to see how the players handle it. Who we're about to go into, um, you know, who stays in the locker room is about to be the thing for 2018. Right. And um, I have a feeling that a lot of players that maybe weren't thinking about it. And this is where the NFL messed up because I don't, I didn't expect there to be a significant amount of protest this season. Right. I think the players were still going to speak about the issues, but I think the protest itself, the gesture itself, was starting to wear out a little bit. Right. And now they've challenged them openly. Because it's not about just challenging them to not use their voice, it's sort of a challenge to their manhood. And you're just going to make them angry, and this is just going to make things more contentious. So. That's why I use the analogy of, like, okay, you just turned a fist bite into a missile launch. And forcefully penalizing them. Correct.
1: Right, because I saw the statement from the NFLPA saying they weren't even consulted about the policy change and they weren't involved, and now they're being reactionary to the news to try to combat it, but now it's actually in motion.
2: Well, and then they put out information that said that all 32 NFL owners were in favor of this. Meanwhile, Jet York with the San Francisco 49ers has said they abstained from their vote. Mm-hmm. You have the Jet CEO, Christopher Johnson, who said that um, he would not be finding any of his players if they decided right. uh, to do any form of a protest on the field. So clearly all 32 were not in favor of this. It sounds a lot like a Trump policy. Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds a lot like the NFL um, was woefully out of touch, right. as they have been throughout this whole issue, tone-deaf. And, you know, for as whatever gain, whatever ground may have been gained by the Players Coalition and them agreeing to give $90 million uh, towards social justice issues, they have just undermined all of that. Right. And you tweeted
1: also today with that news about how you you you're interested to see the first day, like opening day of the NFL, and how many people speak out, or what the reaction is. Uh, We were having a great conversation before this, speaking about uh, James Baldwin, right, and his uh, quote where, to sum that up, he basically says, why pledge allegiance to a flag that never pledged allegiance to you, right? Um, So obviously, being an NFL player is its own platform, separate, but a platform is a platform, and we being people in media and having a voice, Uh, When you put it in that context, obviously, about acknowledging that, you know, this country has never really given, you know, people of color, just marginalized people in general, that same respect, how do you then look at players and say, here's how you should use your voice, or here's how you should think about this, or how do you just personally think players should respond and and use their platform?
2: Well, I would like to see them use this as a unifying element, because this is, again, not just about um, the racial dynamics, not, it's obviously about bringing awareness to the issues that impact our communities, but it's also, again, about labor suppression. Right. And, uh, for a country that was founded on dissent, that has made great advancements based off dissent, it seems highly hypocritical and um, just really disappointing. That something that was meant to draw awareness to police brutality, marginalized peoples, right. those kinds of issues would be frowned upon. Mm-hmm. I, it, I just, uh, I said this to you earlier, like I just can't wait to see how this is all characterized 20 years from now right. because it's going to be a lot of people changing their story. Right. And um, we see it now with the civil rights movement. Absolutely. If you go back and you look at uh, any of the polls that were done in America during the time of the March on Washington, Freedom Riders, a Montgomery bus boycott. 70, percent of Americans thought those were harmful, mm. thought that it was un-American, thought that it was um, harmful to advancement of equal rights. Right. At no point in history has protest ever been agreed upon. Everybody after the fact, when history proves who's right and who's wrong, then everybody wants to say like, Yeah, I was a favorite. Are you sure? Because you're lying. Based on right, right, what history says. Right. Right. So I'm sure 20 years from now, all these NFL owners will pretend that they didn't keep Calvin Kaepernick out of the league because of his, um, the way he used his platform and him trying to bring um, attention to social injustice, social and racial injustice. So uh, I think the league should be embarrassed um, by this because, as you mentioned, there's other behaviors that they tolerate uh, that do not nearly spark as much reaction, outrage, right. or attention from them. It's just too bad Colin Kaepernick didn't hit a woman because he'd be playing right now.
1: Right. <laughs> Crazy enough. Um, I think you, you hit on one point, too, before we transition. Of, I think historically, when we look at it, we see it as these frozen periods of time. like. You know, from slavery to the civil rights movement and all of those things, and I don't think we necessarily see it as a seamless evolution of oppression and, and racism and just finding new ways to marginalize people, new ways to oppress people, or in your, your um, language, basically suppressing people in their jobs. Um, when you look at that and you, and you think about it, how it's happened, it's just been a constant evolution through time. We also mentioned how the times feel still more segregated and more divided you know, than ever. So elaborate on that a little bit just in terms of you know, what is portrayed in terms of you know, we're very liberal and the times are very open and people are protesting and they're there to the actual reality, the perception versus the reality of the landscape socially and, and racially right now.
2: Um, racism is very crafty, that it finds a way to reinvent itself all the time. And Somebody
1: should make a shirt that says racism is
2: crafty.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that should be a hat, a pen, yeah,
2: like, Jamelhill.com <laughs> racism is crafty. Um, racism is very crafty, yeah. it's, um, and you know, what? There, we went from outright slavery to Jim Crow, uh, to even some of the things, even you know, past that uh, post-civil rights to redlining and right. predatory lending. It's like it keeps reinventing. Mm-hmm. And what happens is as we acquire more things, as we, as capitalism takes its true nature, we tend to let the fact that, yes, you have black people making money. You have uh, people of color who are doing well, people of color who are Uh, educated, um, who are living in good neighborhoods, You have NFL players who are making money, professional athletes. Yes, that that is all happening at the same time, but none of that is a protection or a shield from the weight of institutional racism.
3: Mm.
2: Uh, Just today, it's interesting how uh, these things can often be juxtaposed. So today the NFL decides to, to put this policy forth about the national anthem, at the same time Sterling Brown who is a player for the Milwaukee Bucks footage uh, today was released by the police um, the dash cam footage the right? dash cam footage where he was tased and you know uh, assaulted by several Milwaukee police officers uh, for a minor parking violation so that's I mean a double park be a double parking infraction So, and, an right. and uh, amazingly I think he played the next day And we're all seeing, you know, we knew about the incident, but to see what he suffered through and to be able to play the next day. So him being a millionaire basketball player did not stop him from being assaulted by the police. And that's kind of the American experience if you're a person of color, regardless of what you attain, whatever success you have, it can be undermined, taken away at any moment, based off barbecuing, golfing, (laughs) double parking, the slightest things, right? Right. right. Uh, read another another day. Ping, right. apparently. Ping while black it, is it, apparently not
1: permitted we, either. Even as crafty as Black Twitter is, and as incredible as these memes are, they still don't
2: actually resolve a lot of the issues and the things well, you know, that are happening. The problem is that we, as a collective people, we're tired. There's literally nothing else we can do. Right. Um, and I don't mean that pessimistically. Like obviously there is change that we can impact in our own communities. Of course we can do and should still do that. But we can't be the only ones fighting to end this. And for hundreds of years we have been. To a lot of other people racism is still very profitable and it's very comfortable. Right. And we have, you know, we talk about race in our community all the time. It's right. no big deal for us. but than other communities, they don't, and they don't care. And they like the fact that the police keep us in our place or that that has always been used as an extension to keep populations and communities segregated.
1: Well then even in us talking about that, exercising your privilege, that's essentially what that is. Mm -hmm. Privilege, or in this context, white privilege, being able to ignore or not even need to participate in the experiences or the conversations or the sensitivities of a marginalized group. You don't have to be, have to be a part of it, yeah, yeah. absolutely.
2: So because there's so many people who are complicit in mm-hmm. it, um, my fear is that we will be in this flying pattern for a long time. It can't right. be, you cannot burden the people uh, who are oppressed with the responsibility of solving the oppression. Right, right. It doesn't work that way. And
1: about that. Um, So one of the things that I think about having a platform and, and being a journalist is having a platform is the privilege, but being a platform is a responsibility, right? Um, when you look at it through that lens and everything that you know, you're very knowledgeable, you're very outspoken about a lot of things. And you are a go-to voice for a lot of people when it comes to issues that happen. I think you're also in a very unique position being at ESPN because sports sits at the intersection of politics, social issues, entertainment, media, all of these things. So you having that platform and knowing what you know, how do you approach using your platform or telling stories or what's kind of your strategy or process behind using your platform to educate people?
2: Well, I was drawn to sports for a lot of different reasons. I played sports. Right. I love, of course, the competition, the athleticism—all well, the normal things you would love about sports. But sports is also just a lens, right. and uh, you know the 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 anthem protests, what happened to Sterling Brown, what happened to um, you know a lot of the players. It allows us to give sports permission to discuss these issues that are affecting wider society. Right. Not to mention, at times, sports has been ahead of society. You know, Jackie Robinson integrated Major League Baseball in 1947. You know, the Civil Rights Act didn't pass in 1965. So right. sports has also been a great vehicle to connect people So maybe if they see something happening to their favorite player, it might make them more empathetic and they can make the connective tissue between that and the average black person that's walking down the street right. and what they might go through. If somebody with money can go through this, imagine somebody who doesn't have money. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so, That's why I've always thought that sports is very powerful. There's not a lot of things that across the board that all races do together, Right. but sports is one. So there's great power there that can be realized and sometimes sports uses that power and sometimes it fails to. Um, So for me, as I am um, using this platform at ESPN, it's not just about drawing awareness to issues, it's about telling stories of vulnerable people. Right. Because athletes, especially athletes of color, and definitely female athletes are very vulnerable in this society. Right. So sports gives me an opportunity to do that. Right.
1: And to that note as well, you also well even backtracking, you obviously you played sports so you had a passion for sports in that respect. But where did the passion for media Develop and having a platform, you know a lot of athletes may think they want to get into coaching or they want to do things like that To stay close to the game, but you took a different route So where did that passion develop and what were some of your inspirations early on?
2: Well um, Gather around the campfire kiddies. I'm gonna tell you an old story <laughs> There was a time where we did not have the internet and as a result if you were a sports fan You had to do something really crazy called read the newspaper <laughs> 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 uh, So Growing up in Detroit, I was a big Detroit fan. <laughs> yeah. oh, three by three. <laughs> Everybody got out of Detroit. Jokes. <laughs> 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 it's
1: cold and that <laughs> deep. <Uh-oh. Yeah>. Lifelong <laughs> winners. Shane, <laughs>
2: Shane.
1: I love Detroit. I go to Detroit but I visit Detroit.
2: <laughs> Just shame. Just,
1: um, we won't get to the love of your city. We get
2: um, there. No. It's gonna be a slow gradual process <laughs> now. No. No, but like I um and so because I did love, you know, those sports teams, the right. only way I could keep up with them is by reading the newspaper. So you read the sports sections, uh or I read the sports sections, um, we had we were two newspaper uh town, city. Um and so uh, I developed, I already was a voracious reader. I already, I already loved to write. Right. And by reading sports columnists and sports stories, I fell in love with journalism. Right. And, um, you know, so this is the only thing I've ever wanted to do is to specifically be a sports writer. Now is that
1: something you, writing and things like that, is that something you specifically picked up early on? Like yeah, high it, school? Yeah, I did. I used to write
2: short stories and okay. poems and mini novels. and. All kinds of things. So it was always a great escape for me, and mm-hmm. um, uh, having that early passion for it, um, it was just, as I said, it was just like the only thing that I wanted to do. Even though I didn't know, um, I mean, I, there were some black sports columnists in my town, so I, I suddenly read them, but you know, I didn't know really any black writers that were in my vicinity, right. in my you know my my world, uh, but. I was lucky that I had mentors early on that always gave me that sense of belonging.
1: Right. Who were some of your mentors, or, or who were some of the people you looked at for inspiration when you didn't see a lot of people that looked like you? Well,
2: the, the crazy part is a lot of them I initially got to work with, which is uh, a treat. Yeah, for sure. Ball of attraction. But I mean, like, uh, the ter- it, it, in Detroit, they had this um, high school journalism program that you know the, it was for Detroit area high school students, and so. Um, I got to spend a summer working at the Detroit Free Press 20 hours a week, learning the newspaper business, and I was assigned two uh, mentors who were women. Uh, one, Rachel Jones, um, and the other was Janet Howard, who I later worked with uh, at ESPN.com, and she's now a columnist for The Athletic. And having their influence in my life early on, again, I think for people of colors, and especially for women, especially in an industry like sports, which obviously is very male-dominated, right it's important that you have you not only have you know a certain confidence about yourself but you have to feel like you belong that right. you have just as much right to be here as anybody else and so i was lucky that i had that at an early age so i never looked at sports writing as something i shouldn't be doing mm. or that was weird because i was a, a black woman and you know black women don't write about sports and as i evolved throughout my career there was a number of different people who I looked up to, um, whose careers I wanted to emulate, Uh, Michael Wilbon, uh, Claire Smith, who is now um, uh, a senior editor on the Baseball Tonight team in the Baseball Hall of Fame, a black woman writing about baseball her whole life. That's unheard of, you know, for the most part, but I read her when she was writing for the Philadelphia Inquirer. Um, And so, because I was such a journalism nerd, I was able to know about a lot of writers of color and uh, from afar, um, and, you know, it's important to remember whatever industry you're in, you never know who's watching you. Mm-hmm. You never know who's observing how you're going about your career, and trust me, people find inspiration in the smallest things. Right,
1: and you mentioned too being, and, and you look very young, you look great. But I'm older than I look though. <laughs> but, but you <laughs> mentioned pre- internet, pre-internet. Right? pre-internet, pre-social media, pre-internet. Yeah. How did you approach opportunity, whether it was finding it or creating opportunity for yourself? And then at that point, looking at the industry from that vantage point of seeing it then in, in the era of newspapers and things like that, what was your outlook on the media business and getting into it before you before you did?
2: Well, um, I think we all, especially you know, if you're a person of color, you have that. It's like it's in the Black Parents Handbook. You gotta be twice as good to finish the rest, right? Right. Right? So um, that was drilled into me early. So there was this drive and ambition in me because I knew I couldn't really afford to make a mistake. I mean, not necessarily a mistake, because you know um, we all make them, but like I couldn't afford to miss at this. So I had to be as prepared as possible. And being a woman of color, knowing that if I wasn't as prepared. I was gonna get exposed, hmm. you know, and the price of that was much steeper for me. And getting involved in journalism early was a huge, huge step. Um, you know, doing that program that I mentioned within my junior and senior year of high school, uh, I actually worked. Okay,
1: can we get the, the mic working? <laughs> <laughs>
2: What high school? <laughs> high school, Mumford. In the house. <laughs> Westside. side. <laughs> Mustangs. Um, anyway, so uh, I worked at the, the Free Press my junior and senior year at high school uh, answering phones in the sports department. I was able to have some professional clips by the time I went to Michigan State. And I worked for the College newspaper. There, uh, all four years, I had interned. By the time I graduated, I was so tired of interning. I had five internships. I worked at my college (laughs) newspaper. Uh, You know, I was the. They could say a lot of things about me. I could be perceived in a lot of different ways. But the one thing that they weren't going to say was that I wasn't hustling. You know, it's like what Jay-Z said: the hustlers never sleep, right? I might not be the best writer in the world. I might not formulate the best sentences or be the best television personality, but you're not gonna outwork me. So so that was kind of my attitude, and so I just had this mental path um, uh, already plotted out of what I wanted to do, which uh, did not ever include ESPN, nor did it ever include doing television
1: right and you mentioned too and we'll get to this um, there's a part of your commencement speech that I definitely want to touch on and open up but uh, because we threw so much shade at Detroit we're gonna uh, <laughs> we're gonna give Detroit some, Especially some to love right now we
2: are like, uh, practically <laughs> <it> in Detroit <laughs> uh, we verified <laughs> can, we, can we say
1: this? We verify Detroit as a henny market. Detroit, <laughs> we like the capital, like anybody, um, <laughs> like see somebody every, <laughs> she got you? Um, But Detroit is known, if you ask anybody, even people who haven't been to Detroit, Detroit is just known as a hard-working, working-class city that may not get the credit. It deserves a lot of things come out of Detroit, but people still take pride in Detroit, being from there and coming up there. How did the spirit of Detroit really shape you or influence you and what did you take from the city that still shapes the way you navigate today?
2: Well, um, you, you hit on what is a major, a major sort of theme of Detroit. It's that blue collar, hard working mm-hmm. you know, mentality. We have to scrap for everything. You know, we're not the cool city, we're not LA, we're You're not sure? New York. Mm-hmm. You know, in terms of perception, like, the only time when I was growing up Detroit was ever on the news, it was something awful happened. And it's right. still kind of that way. Like, they don't come right. to Detroit to do positive stories. You know, probably last time most of you heard anything about Detroit is when the real estate crisis hit. And they were talking about how we had houses for $9 and the running joke, of, oh, you can buy a whole block of houses in Detroit for $100. You know, and so wow. that's seeing how we're perceived nationally that if you're from there, that makes you even double down even more and put on more for the city. Right. So um, for me, that you know, that scrappiness, that toughness, having that chip, um, that was all in my DNA. Right. You know, it was anyway. Growing up, um, you know, poor, raised by a single mother, it was already there. It was multiplied right. coming from. That city, and so um, that's why you know I said in my Twitter bio that uh, you know Detroit raised me, right. and uh, I mean that because uh, there's so much. You know, I know everybody feels this way about their city or their neighborhood to a certain degree, but I think it's even just more pronounced given the perceptions that people right. have of Detroit.
1: And I think people use terms like work really hard and things so much that you almost forget how valuable that actually is and people talk about it all the time but how important is it really to have because i know for myself the more you elevate right you have to be trained for the next level of your career the next level of your life you have to continue to have as it, as it relates to sports to a competitiveness of a, a fighting you how important is having that fight like being willing to really go the extra mile, push yourself that extra step when you're tired when you don't feel like it. How important is really having that drive and that uh, I mean, it's
2: crucial um, because, you know, just from a, a self-preservation standpoint and just owing it to yourself. Mm-hmm. But I think it's also an added complication if you're a woman, because a lot of the things that men are conditioned to do, that men get applauded for doing, we don't get that pass. You know, if a woman is aggressive in the workplace, you know what they gonna call us, and it's nothing nice. Right. And we could just be demanding the same things that a guy would do. Right. Um, I'm gonna be a diva. I'm gonna be something else or whatever. Um, so we almost have to condition ourselves out of out of that, and especially if you're a black woman, what the pre- perceptions are if you are about your business. You know.
1: As I'm saying, John, not to interrupt you, she yeah. said at uh, Tech Connects it was interesting uh, that she would outperform her goals she would excel in every aspect but she always got a negative mark on her review about her presence about her attitude or about her confidence like people responded to that and what she said was the minute she knew the minute all of the comments were uh, were not about performance is when she knew it was time to move on and she spoke a lot to that about how as a woman, as a black woman, as a confident, strong black woman, how that's really what you have to be vulnerable to is the things that have nothing to do with you doing your job. Oh no, that's,
2: right. you know, that's when the jig is up, right? Because, mm-hmm. um, like, right now, uh, black women are the most educated group in this country. Oh, um, hey, I <laughs> oh, we're the most educated group, but when you look at what that gender pay scale looks right, like, right. we're at the bottom, right? Because mm. there are groups ahead of us and, and groups that don't have nearly as much ed- education as we do. So the fight uh, is sort of twofold for us. It's like we're battling both gender and race simultaneously all right. the time. So it's this weird juggling that goes on. And um, and certainly for me, and I know Bose too, she's amazing. Uh, that I've always looked at it as, um, you know, I can't really, I'm just not going to apologize for my success or where I am. I'm not here to do that. I mean, I owe me. I don't owe you. So, right. um, so yeah, uh, I think, especially in this profession, um, it was, I, I, I played the angles a lot. And I think we all have to be po- politically crafty wherever we were. Um, understanding the difference between mentors and allies, um, understanding how to develop and navigate relationships so that when your name is brought up in the room, one or two people, if not more, can say, oh, I think they'd be great for that, or I think, uh, that would be, um, you know, a great challenge for them, and I had to, you know, sort of fight against some of those conditioned instincts, because I think a lot of... People of color, we sort of come from, um, we come from homes, or it's been instilled in us that, you know, when we go to work, we should just like, just do our work, put our head down, and just that's it. But it right. takes so much more than that to survive in corporate America. Right. What were
1: some of your methods? And obviously, we have a lot of women in attendance too. What were some of the methods or the practices or things you reminded yourself throughout your journey? that kept you focused and kept you, like you said, you played the angles that allowed you to
2: always move smart and move calculated and get to where you wanted to go? Well, um, as somebody once told me, sometimes, especially in media, and really, especially in television, you know, sometimes you're the hammer and sometimes you're the nail. Every time I was a hammer, I was wielding it like Thor. (laughs) absolutely. Because you have to create a sense of leverage. Like, people don't respond a lot of times to talent, they do respond to leverage. And I also was willing to make myself a little bit uncomfortable. Um, I think it's Cheryl Sandberg who talks a lot about this and Lean In, is that if there's a position that's available, a guy will look at that position, and it could be 10 qualifications, and he may have one, and he be like, "Yep, I can do it, <laughs> right? right? A woman will look at that list, she'll have nine of the 10 and worry about whether or not she can do the job. Mm-hmm. And so, I tried to erase that mentality of thinking I had to be perfect at something in order to deserve it, and say, you know what? I don't know if I can actually do this, but I'm gonna try it anyway. Like I didn't know, um, of course, you know, we see how it turned out. But when they came to us and, and offered Mike and I Sports Center, I never wanted to be a Sports Center anchor. But the way they positioned it and how they sold us on it, I, you know, I was thinking to myself, you know, I, I think I can do this. Um, even though it's not something that I would have naturally thought I would do. Uh, now, at the end of the day, you know, it's not being there it was more about creative differences and not our ability to do the job. But if the worst thing on my resume is that I was a six o'clock sports center for 13 months, I'll take that. Right. All right. Okay. <laughs> right. Is, some people have far worse things on their resume than that. So right. you have to be willing to make yourself a little bit uncomfortable to see perhaps the greatest growth. Mm-hmm both personally and professionally. Like me making a move to TV, oh and also I would add this, definitely don't be afraid to make money moves. Definitely not. Because right. at the end of the day, Hold I, on, say that again. Do not be afraid to make money moves. Like the whole reason I started doing TV real talk was because I looked at, uh, I remember I saw a story that Matt was making $20 million a year and I was like, damn! <laughs> <laughs> You see how this TV thing yeah. gonna work out, right? Yeah, quick. right, right, right. You know? yeah. So, uh, yeah, of course, right. I have a passion for telling stories and journalism and commentary. That's all good and well, but I'm also in this to get paid. So, um, seeing that, that was, you know, sort of eye opening. Like, mm-hmm. the potential and that ceiling for television is so much higher, right. generally speaking, than it is for a sports writer.
1: Right. Uh, you brought up a point too before we transition about deserving, right? Like even if you're not perfect, you still feel like you deserve it. I think that's important because one thing we don't talk about a lot enough when we talk about mental health too specifically, but self-sabotage. And even if you feel confident or like you're prepared, it's still believing and accepting in yourself that you deserve all the opportunity, you deserve the platform. Speak a little bit about that, or people who may be struggling with getting over the hump of really feeling like you deserve what you're going
2: after. So I'm gonna pass along the gem that a friend gave me, and just and, and didn't intend to necessarily give it to me, but just speaking from her own personal experience, it's, a lot of us suffer from imposter syndrome. And what that is is that even as we're accomplishing great things or doing stuff and working hard and all that, there's just something in us that feels like that people are gonna find out we're a fraud, that we really aren't as good as maybe the results indicate or we're not as prepared or we're not as something. So you sometimes can self-sabotage that way by thinking that there is something in you that is not real enough or hasn't done enough to be here. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it, it's just a result of conditioning. Um, some of it is just the trauma of of race and racism in this country. Right. And uh, you know, we all have self-doubts regardless of what race you are, don't get me wrong, but I think they can sometimes be more pronounced in in us. And I guess for me, getting over those times, which thankfully I was born with probably an, uh, an extraordinary an extraordinary self-confidence. Some of that came from, quite honestly, playing sports. I mean, that's why right. I think is the benefit for women who do play sports is that right. it does uh, give you um, higher self-esteem and all these other benefits uh, that help you later in life. It's a reason why, when you look at the Fortune 500 CEO list, a lot of those former, a lot of those CEOs are former athletes that are women. Um, at any rate, I, I think that the trick is in those moments of. Of self doubt, you have to power through and just kind of maybe even give yourself a pep talk and say, look, if um, people, uh, if I'm in a position that, you know, maybe some people don't think I should be in or whatever, then you gotta fake it till you make it. You know, you just gotta keep doing it until you decide or until that moment clicks where you're like, you know what, I'm actually pretty good at this. Right. You know, and you only get better through that with reps. You know, That's as, um, yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, I guess to use that sports analogy, we've seen some, you know, look at LeBron's jump shot in year one and two or year one through five versus what it is now, right? right? That may have been in the gym. So you right. can only get over this by the number of hours that you put into it. Cause then once you feel secure, you'll be okay. Like I'm confident I can do any kind of TV out there. Right. Like the one thing about sportsing is like, it's a fire drill. Don't mm-hmm. let the, the smoothness fool you like It's a total fire yeah. drill behind closed doors. But as sometimes frustrating as those early months were, as we were doing the show, after a while I got completely comfortable with chaos. Right. You know, somebody, could have been on fire, running naked through the studio, and I would just read the prompter and act like nothing was there right, right. So whatever, naked man just walked through anyway. So yeah. uh, last night Steph had, you know, <laughs> it just kind of works out that way.
1: And it's and it's something that I I think about a lot too. Is you work really hard to make the hard work look easy. Correct. You know, like when you Steph Curry put a lot of time in to get his jump shot to where it is now, and it just looks pretty when it comes off and it goes in, but you don't see the hours he was sweating in the gym and things like that. Which brings me to another point, which we should celebrate her for this. You gave your first commencement speech. I did. And which was, you guys should look it up, if you follow her on Instagram, a clip or, or you can see it, but uh, one thing that really stuck out with me, which is perfect going off of what you're saying, is You said if there's one key, I'll give you one key to accomplishing anything you want to accomplish and being anything you want to be, you said, fall in love with the process, but screw the results. Mm -hmm. That's what you said, right? Fall in love with the process, screw the results. That goes right into the idea of doing the work, appreciating your process. Speak to the importance of really falling in love with the process, trusting the timing of your life, and really doing the work it takes to get you to the next level.
2: See, there are are people um, who don't necessarily love doing something, they just love what it gives them. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't necessarily last, okay? And so the reason why I said you gotta love the process, uh, taking sports for example, when you hear Kobe talk about the 6 a.m. workouts and all those things, I mean, he left the game because there was nothing left him to give and also his body was at a certain point he truly had nothing left to give but what kept him going was that he was excited about 6 a.m. workouts sure he loved winning titles right but it was a it was a 6 a.m. workouts and for months working on one move and his footwork and that's what he fell in love with Michael Jordan was the same way LeBron's the same way highly successful people though they get results that you know Mm -hmm. 90 million dollar contracts and you know, fame and glory and championships, the, those come as a result of. And I think a, a lot of times, especially, I notice it now in, in this journal, this um, younger generation of journalists, is they're so focused on the destination. They're so focused on, you know, they run up to me all the time and say, I want to work for ESPN, how do I work for ESPN? Easy, don't. Like, don't worry about working at ESPN, worry about being good. You know, they asking me about, you know, how, what can I do to build my brand? How you gonna have a brand without a product? Mm -hmm. So it's just Mm -hmm. just focus on those things and you'll be okay. You know, our business in particular, if you're in journalism, it boils down to real basic things. Accuracy, truth, fairness, telling people information that they don't know, putting things in the context. Regardless of if we are doing those things on a stone tablet or on our phones mm-hmm. that part never changes So focus right. on being good at that,
1: right? Yeah. and you and I both um, As as savvy as we are and may continue to be in the digital space We practice the written word at yeah. the end of the day, right? So in this time of social media and everybody's about content and videos mm-hmm. and everything short how important is really perfecting your craft as a journalist and producing quality work and telling great stories and just the overall power of the written word in a time like today?
2: Well, it, it will never go out of style, that's for one, but, but that's what, sort of what I meant about the method doesn't necessarily change. You can tell a powerful story through a digital feature. Right. Um, you could still write, you know, even if you do a, a feature for linear television, you can still write a hell of a script to put a feature together. Right. Um, writing, you don't have to write 10,000 words for it to have impact and weight. Right. Uh, but I do think that if you're able to write well, being concise, simple, powerful, that that's everlasting. Um, And especially now as we become, or not become, we are a digital society. It actually makes me appreciate the written word even more because uh, uh, a lot of people don't know how to communicate. Like that really is a gift, you know, to be able to do that. And, um, you know, I tripped out because I I learned not too long ago that, like they're not even teaching kids how to write cursive anymore. Which I was like, what? all the time I spent with that ruler trying to get it of all the a and I do it in right. And I realized that because of the technology, we're going to quickly be a society that doesn't you know, write. You know, you have teachers complaining that students are writing papers in like text message language, like not even capitalizing stuff. Sure. Which I'm just yeah. like, what? <laughs> uh-huh. I find this to be egregious. So um, there will always be power in writing. I mean, just how easily you recited James Baldwin. Um, you know, there's I can remember many, I feel like I can almost recite letters from a Birmingham jail, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, there is right. some impact about words that is lasting and stays with you. Right. And
1: then take a shift because when you spoke about destination and how everybody wants to get to a destination and people doing it for other reasons, they want to do it for what it gets them. Uh, when I think about purpose or when you find your mission or your intent, it's not about getting to a point, it's about how far you can take it. At that point, it's like, how far can I take this before they shut the lights off? <laughs> right. You know? But I think in that same vein, you know, you have people now that get excited because they did something great one time. <laughs> Instead of realizing that to be excellent, it's you gotta do it a hundred times, a thousand times. And then when you level up you gotta do it a thousand times again. So speak about what it really takes to Accomplish something great and be great at what you do, and the importance also of not seeing it as a destination, but seeing it as something that's ongoing.
2: Well, I, I think part of that is never being satisfied and never actually thinking what you're doing is great. You know, for for me, um, you know, people ask me all the time, "What's your greatest accomplishment?" I don't know. I haven't had it yet. <laughs> you right, know, I right, mean right. being certainly being journalist of the year, that was something that's still pretty mind blowing I mean, to me because <laughs> I never win anything. So it was just like <laughs> what? But um yeah, I and and maybe that's just me being self deprecating, but uh my story and my journey still feels so incomplete that I can't contemplate I can't pat myself on the back yet. Right. Um, despite the fact that I'm, you know, blessed and humbled by all the things that I've been able to do, and I guess quote-unquote accomplished, but it just still feels very incomplete to me. Mm-hmm. And um, that could be more my psychosis that, you know, as right. other people that are successful may not look at it that way. I, but it allows me to understand that when you ask most, say, great athletes as they're making history, um, you know, what they think about it, and. Uh, you know, are they impressed with themselves? They have a very hard time answering that question right. because to them, they're just—it's so routine, or they just feel like by patting yourself on your back or saying like, "Oh, I did this really great," that you're also alternately saying, "Okay, I'm done. Right. That's it for me now. I have nothing left. I have no- another lever. That's that's not there. Another speed isn't possible."
1: Right. We're also in a time too where I feel like. It's easy to get caught up in what other people are doing or how other people are telling stories and trends. So, how do you stay ahead and just focus on and stay disciplined enough to just do quality work and do your thing and, and avoid the trends and avoid everything else that's happening?
2: Well, mostly, I just, what I avoid, and this is kind of part of that, is like, I avoid, you know, watching everybody's career. Yeah, and there's certainly careers I appreciate. But what you'll find yourself doing is making comparisons, right. and I'm I'm focused on my focus. Like, they, if you do it, you're doing work. Yeah. Good, I'm happy for you. And uh, but you know what will happen is that you'll start to to compare yourself. Like before I write a column, I don't like to read other columns about what I'm writing about because I don't want their opinion to influence mine, and I don't want to start. Just kind of subconsciously copying them. Right. So I'll read the stuff after, or I'll read columns or other, um, you know, great articles and think pieces after I've written something or whatever. But right. I don't do it going into the process because I don't want it to kind of, and I mean disrespectfully, contaminate my my mentality and approach. Right. Um, so you, that's just really just a confidence thing. You have to. Be confident in knowing that if everybody's rushing over here i'm gonna just stay right here right Yeah. and i know for
1: me it's hard too because having covered so many different topics and industries throughout my career and having an opinion on so many different types of things it's hard to pick and filter through like what am i going to address or what am i going to use my platform to talk about how do you sift through or know okay i'm going to tackle this or i'm going to pass on this or this is something where i feel like i have to speak up and use this platform or I'm gonna let other people address that situation.
2: Well, that's one thing I think has been a real benefit to me not doing daily television. Mm-hmm. The hard, the grind of doing daily TV, especially if you're in commentary, is that every day you gotta give a damn about everything. And every day I didn't, I mean, that's the truth. Right. Is that it was some topics, I was just like, all right, let me it till I make it because I could care less about this topic, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> Um, but the beauty of being a writer in this role now is that I can cherry pick, Right. you know? I don't have to get back on defense all the time, right? right, right, <laughs> right? right. And, uh, but for me, with everything I write about is from a, a, a point of passion, right. it starts there. Do I care about this? Do I have something important to say about this? Um, why does this resonate with me? Is this a good story? Right. If it checks all those boxes, you know, I'll write about it, like I'm going to write about the anthem. Um, right. And, you know, obviously it's a hot topic, it's news, um, although I can't decide if I'm going to write about that or about the Milwaukee Bucks player. <laughs> I have to think about that, I'm going to pick, and that will be Maybe tough. You're able to interweave them a little Yeah, bit. I know, that's what I was thinking, see? Yeah, well, yeah great minds. Um, But uh, yeah, no, I always pick it uh, from that standpoint and that's what I love so much about the new role is being able to think wider, or I'm sorry, think more narrowly and um, more selectively. Right, and I think
1: people, we only have a couple more questions, we'll open it up to the Q&A. People talk a lot about telling the truth and being real. Everybody's like, oh, are you real? Mm -hmm. 100 emojis under (laughs) everything. But the real cost of telling the truth, and the price you pay for being honest and using your platform for truth. Speak about that, the reality of what comes with being somebody who's willing to boldly and confidently share your truth and share your perspective.
2: Well, we were just talking a minute ago about uh, being able to decipher what right. you want to dive into. Right. It works the same thing with truth. Um, I mean, there are truths that you can't deny, certainly that. Right. But whenever I decide to speak up about something or speak to something, um, it is, I don't speak to everything for a reason. Because uh, I do think there is something to be said for preserving your voice, preserving your sanity, <laughs> too, right. as well. Right. And, um, you know, for me, uh, I understanding that because there is gonna be an inherent cost, am I willing to pay that? Like, if it goes totally bad, am I willing to, and can I live with it? And be like, okay, all right, I knew that could possibly happen, but I'm good with it. You know? Um, Cause people ask me all this all the time about, um, uh, with the Trump stuff, I, I, and I believe this, if the conversation wasn't had with me, and there was no whispers it was going to be had internally or, um, but, had that cost me my job, I would have live with it. I would live with it because I feel like I'll be on the right side of history. Mm. And so, Mm. I can live with that, Mm -hmm. right? It's what I can't live with is, um, you know, me being disingenuous about something Mm -hmm. or, you know, whatever. But I think with all of us, we're going to pick our fights for sure. Um, And some of it is the nature of my personality. Like, I'm not, there are some people, and this is not a negative, but there are some people who get fired up about everything. Right. And I'm, in all those people who can do that, I'm one of those that uh, I'll let I'll let 20 fish swim by, but that 21st one that I care about, I I'm bringing a
1: hammer. Right. right. And for for anybody too, just piggybacking off of that, who are in those situations, I've been in situations in my uh, career where I've Wanted to stand for something and eventually did stand for it, or, or had to calculate the risk of what this would be. How to actually deal with that? Because when you're when you're thinking about it, how do you really calculate the risk for yourself? And how should people kind of measure that uh, that outlook? Because I feel like sometimes it's alone too. You feel alone. You feel
2: isolated. How do you how do you deal with that? The risk to me is all. You know, mental, personal toll. It's some things I can live with and some things I can't. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I just judge it strictly off off that. And if you are, and some of it too is positioning. Like I had a lot of people, uh, like when controversial issues arise, I always get tweets from people who uh, say, you know, you could fall back, sis. We got this because, you know, we need you to stay where you at. I'm like, all right, thank you. Appreciate it. They gave you the protect Jamel Hill at all costs. I, like, I, I appreciate y'all, but right, like, don't right. worry. Uh, right. Jamel knows her bills. Yeah, right. <laughs> she so. knows that rent is due regardless. So. And Jamel is still employed. For anyway. Still employed. For some reason, thought not. Yeah. Despite uh, rumors otherwise. Right. Um, no, but, um, you know, you do have to weigh what is the the personal toll it will take. Like if you stay silent about something, am I, if this situation isn't handled, if it if it becomes something else, right. and I had a chance to do something about it that I didn't, can I live with that? Right. And if you can't, that's when you know it's time to activate and you just have to think it through. Hopefully you've had things, you thought about it enough so that you have created some level of support for yourself during those moments.
1: And um, you also, we'll just have two more, we'll we'll, um, wrap it up. A lot of us talk about it, we see it, you mentioned tweeting on the internet, trolls. (laughs) Trolls that hate, hate 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 (laughs) handling the hate. And we talked about the thick skin you have to have and how you have to deal with it. Uh, But elaborating on that, I think we're in a time where we all make ourselves vulnerable, when we share, when we create, when we put stuff out you pretty much keep your body open to, to have shots taken at you. So how do you become bulletproof to the shots or develop that
2: skin or just how do you handle hate? Well, it's real easy, because you know what happens every other Thursday? Direct deposit. <laughs> <laughs> and, I guess, what guess what happens on Thursday, all right. <laughs> right? So I'm more fascinated by them being so mad sometimes. Right, you know? right. mm-hmm. And then there are days and I think this just applies to real life, and especially women, we know this all too well. Right. There are just days you got time. Like, I got time today, so what you wanna do? <laughs> you know? And so there are just times where, I, just for my own amusement, I just wanna make an example of some people. Uh, because if they're clamoring for attention, I'm gonna give you the attention you deserve. Yeah. Hey. Since you wanted it so bad, hey. here you go. So I, I specialize in deleted tweets and deleted accounts. Please do. <laughs> so, Cause, you know, I don't think you can get you can't go down the rabbit hole to the point where it impacts how you conduct your business, Mm -hmm. where it changes how you think in terms of like, you know not like being in an open-minded kind of way where you start, if you're a writer, worrying about how people will react. You just gotta speak your truth and just handle whatever comes with it. And especially if you think you're right, then when they come at you, then you know how to defend yourself. So I don't respond to everybody, um, but I take, you know, Twitter and social media for what it is. I, You have, you should remind yourself often, it's just a small percentage of the world. Like, there's plenty of people, you know, they jump stupid on me on social media all the time. But when I get out in public, when I'm in this atmosphere, just walking the streets, it's all love. And right. so you have to remind yourself that those people that are on the keyboard, they're just emboldened by the anonymity. Um, and hence why I tell a lot of them like, that's cute you so mad but you know if you saw me you just ask for a picture and tell your friends you met me. So, you can be fake all day on this, so it's good, but come on, we know what'll happen in real life cause to this day, um, you know, no one has ever confronted me um, about anything that they disagree with me about or, or anything, period. So I just tend to think that social media at times just brings out a special kind of food. (laughs) And you
1: you gave the point of things you can live with and things you can't, that's how you calculate the risk. The importance of staying true Mm -hmm. and being authentic to yourself and not compromising that voice regardless of who it is, if it's your company, if it's the public, if it's whoever, being willing to stand up for yourself and stay true to yourself, the value and and the
2: importance of that. I mean, that's everything. That really should be your foundational being. And you know, I think you have to understand that um, you know, you being true to that—that—that that, that comes in many forms. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, a lot of people, like as ESPN, has been in different controversies over the years. Um, you know, maybe one of our most recent ones was when the fantasy football auction happened, and right. uh, a lot of people rightfully so criticized ESPN getting said that looked like a slave au- auction because it did. And somebody should have obviously known better and it was addressed. But the one thing that was good that people you know, watching don't know, because I mean I got a lot of people tweeting like, "What's the, you know, get your company and why don't you publicly criticize them? I don't have to. That was all handled internally. Right. Don't have to. So it's like you have to learn and understand that staying too true to yourself doesn't mean that you have to go on a, a Twitter rant right. about it or whatever, right. that you can um, handle things uh, behind the scenes just as uh, effectively. What was it, Lil Wayne? to said, real G's moving silence? Like, like Messiah? What that mean? Go. <laughs> Whatever that means. <laughs> uh, awesome. So give it up for uh, uh, go
1: And as we open it up for the Q&A too, so it's hard to build a great team, mm. and you and Mike had incredible yeah. chemistry, yep. it was great. Uh, what is the thought process now moving forward? First of all, what is your role for people who don't know? Oh, okay. And then, um, you know, how do you approach this now moving moving forward and moving solo?
2: So, my role now, I'm a senior correspondent for The Undefeated. For those who are not familiar with it, the, the Undefeated, thank you. It's ESPN's vertical site, which specifically covers the intersection between race, sports, and culture. Um, right up my alley. Uh, I have not stopped doing television. Doing Sports Nation next week, week after highly questionable. And so I just get to pick the TV uh, that I like to do and producers and and hosts that I like. Um, but yeah, I mean it's definitely been an adjustment. I mean Mike and I we did television together for four straight years. Um, we're also friends in real life. You know right. we were friends long before we ever started doing TV together. And I think that was probably the toughest part of everything that happened with the six was that. Um, it, it, you know, it felt like one of those sort of relationship situations where, you know, you might be really in love with somebody, but the friends and family done broke y'all <laughs> you all up. You know what I'm saying? Right. You're like, but we didn't even have to be broken up right. um, necessarily. It was just a product of just kind of how things went. But, right. um, so yeah, I mean, I I, have, I feel like, you know, we'll work together again. Right. Um, you know, I don't know if it'll be at ESPN or not, but I think we. We will. There's a a, a desire right. to do that at some point. So That's maybe awesome. one day, you know, well, it's like a you know, big boy and in and in, in three stacks, right? Yeah. It's like they went off, made the separate albums. Now we all wait for a reunion at some point, right? Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Thank you. So we'll do the Q and A. with Entire questions? Anybody? Man, right? I got you. You guys good? Y'all sleep? <laughs> yeah. yeah. yeah had to make sure. First of all, thank you so much.
3: Uh, being a fellow Detroiter, got to just- You a West Sider? I am West
2: Sider. 12th okay. Street. I'm with Cass. Wait, 12th Street? 12th Street. My mama grew up on 12th Street. Yeah. Yeah. 12th Street, at... 12th Street you... <laughs> Yes. <laughs> That's all good. That's the show, though. <laughs> yes, yeah. That's But you know the good part. Good exactly. two blocks any direction,
3: he's already known. But thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure to be a part of this, German Society. You guys did an amazing job. Um, to the point of constantly growing, never feel like you accomplished, patting yourself on the back. Never arrive, always growing. Do you think that there's a possibility of a return to people of color having their own Negro League or you know, what was destroyed by integration and denigrated and exploited. People of color feel nowadays, shout out to the NFL. You know, we experienced our hardships. Do you find value in working with the platforms with cultural impact over the financial impact? Things like the Drift Society, you're here today, so I would say yes. <laughs> working with Cassius, Urban One, TV One, Radio One, right. Bossa, Hello Beautiful, shout so out to all your whole crew. <laughs> up in the real right? <laughs> Um, is there a, a, a place where we can get back to that or is that something that's viable and allow that to live concurrently with the mainstream thing because that's never going to go away. We're right. all going to want to play in the mainstream place but that's I think right. just maybe just open up a space for
2: us to have our own thing and is that realistic and how do you feel about that? No I, I do think sports wise it will be a challenge because it feels like that horse has already left the barn uh, so to speak but I still think even within that, there are opportunities there. Um, maybe in esports, maybe um, in some other avenues. Especially as, I mean, the, the most obvious one is the NCAA. Like at some point, I mean, I don't expect them to get their act together. And even though, you know, at times, Levar Ball is the drunk uncle at the picnic, <laughs> yeah, really? but he, his idea is, is there. It's solid. Like there should be some kind of league created, um, though I do expect one, the, the one-and-done rule to go away, but but some kind of league that if you don't wanna to go to college or you don't, um, you know, you feel like you need to prepare yourself, some kind of professional outlet that, that pays you capably as a professional, that's there. Where I do think it's possible for us to have that same spirit of the Negro Leagues and others, is content, that is where we have seen a tremendous amount of ownership from absolutely people of color. You know, you look at Shonda Rhimes, and Issa Rae, and um, you know, Will Packer, and all these different people. You know, the fact that Net- Netflix can't write checks fast enough for the creators of Dear White People. Like, there's, there's so much there in content, and it's part of the reason why, you know, last August I started a production company, me and my best friend from college. Um, you know, we're both writers by trade, you know, we've both done television, experienced in media, and there's a lot of content that we want to create. Because right. I look around, despite there being, um, you know, the obvious societal issues and things going on, but when you look at the variety of content that's available right. for people of color, it's, it's really kind of amazing. So we need to continue to do that. Now, part of that equation also comes in the support. I was having this <laughs> back and forth one day on Twitter about BET. Where everybody has opinions about BET, what they're not doing, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And what I've said to many people about, you know, BET is that and I promise I don't have stock in it. That's not why I'm saying it. Is that you know we hold them and we tend to do this with black-owned entities, holding them to different standards that we don't to anybody else. Amen. Um, TV One, TV you know, or or even. Being real about what we're not doing. You know, we talk about, I hear a lot of people of color say, oh, I wish it was news programs devoted to us and this and that. But when they're put on television, y'all don't watch it. Right. So it's like, you can't have it both ways. You know, right. if you want that programming to reflect who you are, you have to support it. Right. Yeah, like, I, I know the show with BT, The Quad, it, it got canceled. The Quad was a good show, but y'all didn't watch it. Right. So when BT decides to put on something that is maybe less substantive right. then don't go criticize them when you didn't do your job with it, you know? And right. like BT, they could never have had Love & Hip Hop. Y'all right. would have crucified them. Yeah, but true. y'all would crucify them for putting on that kind of programming or something similar but still go watch it on VH1 or still go watch it on A&E. You'll watch all the Real Housewives on other networks right. but wouldn't watch it on BT. So it's kind of like we gotta be real about no. our fledgling support at times yeah. for these en- entities. You know, I love Bossip and Shade Room and and World Star Hip Hop. They're guilty pleasures. I love them all. I got Bossip fam too. Yeah. But at the same time, I think there's room for supporting the undefeated. It's the only. You know, it's one of the few sites of its kind, or you know, supporting Complex and all those. Things that are speaking directly to our communities with people in charge of those entities.
1: Yeah, I'm a firm believer, and part of why I talk about the creative class so much is I feel like creators are the new athletes, the new artists, the new people in the industry. The way content and media is going is the new entertainment business, it's the new that new arena. So essentially looking at it like we are the ones who can design the kind of culture we want to see through the stories we tell, through the platforms we create. That's kind of our way to leverage the cultural influence that we accumulate and be able to leverage that to be able to create a new lane that we own and get back to a space of-,
2: yeah, and of telling our stories,
1: story. you know? Absolutely. So we got one, I'm right here. The oh. one. All right. Okay. So he had his name? Okay. My name is Chris. Uh, I am uh,
0: a huge fan of yours. So Thank you. Thank you, Um I had a question specifically about um, heteronormatives in sports. Um, I felt as though, uh, specifically with Becky Hammond, and in her interviewing to be a head coach in the NBA, um, Twitter blew up over it, and a lot of people had different different opinions on it. Um, I wanted to know, like, your take on that situation, but specifically how you go about educating people on those heteronormatives in sports because they're so oftentimes at play, but oftentimes go overseen, um, especially in basketball, where it's a, it's a male-dominated sport by coaches, players, owners, even broadcasters, to the point where there's just this expectation and this standard set. Um, I love to know your take on it. We talk about it on my, my podcast called the Left Side Strong Side podcast, but um, it was a question I specifically wanted to ask you because I wasn't sure.
2: I just wanted to know your opinion. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, Becky Hammond, obviously, uh, unbelievable player, um, you know, coming up the coaching ranks. And I don't really think the players have, what's so interesting about that, like, I don't think the players have any issue with it at all. Because, you know, they know who knows basketball. Well, probably they want to win. They're like, shoot. She was went, cool, great, that's all I need to know. Um, what's been interesting is seeing the reaction you know, among the sports fans and consumers, and it's been, a, it's been a lot. I mean, like in our community in particular, she's faced some hate because there are people who look at her and the fact she's interviewing for jobs and say, uh, well, y'all don't do the brothers like that, so why should she be able to skip the line? It's like, can't look at it that way, you know? It's like, we'll never get anywhere with with that kind of mentality, even though I understand the frustration, but that's not a dynamic she created, you know? Um, So, unfortunately in sports, there's gonna always be this barrier that what you know about sports is somehow directly tied to your gender. Even though there are plenty of, you know, even in my field, there are plenty of male commentators who have never played sports but I'm the one that has to hear, you never played football, so what do you know? It's like, all right, dude, that's 400 pounds on your couch that can't sprint to the door without passing out. Sure, <laughs> you know, this ain't, I'm not testing my 40, <laughs> right? Like this is about, uh, you know, what I bring to the table as, a, as an analyst. But, um, so I think like the the general culture, especially the likes to demean the accomplishments of female athletes, and make them, despite the fact that in basketball, you know, there's so many comparatives that are there. Like, okay, you can dribble, you can dribble. Doesn't matter the gender. Like, you got a left hand, you got a left hand. Like, okay, uh, that that's the part that needs to evolve. I think that I think the organizations in the NBA is there. But what I always wonder, I don't worry so much about the first. I worry about the second. The second is where you really figure out, like, right, is this, are they in this for real? Is there a real desire to see women integrated into the, into the man's game? So who's coming behind Becky Hammond? You know, is somebody going to hire Dawn Staley? Is somebody going to, you know, like, so that's what I would kind of watch to see whether or not their interest as a league is genuine in terms of integration. Awesome.
1: Thank you for your question, man.
0: Okay, my name is uh, Roland Morrissey, and I have uh, two questions for you. Um, I've heard you speak in the past, and you talked about your time in Central Florida, and the moderator, he asked you a question about who is someone that has influenced you or impacted you. And I kind of believe, or kind of like in my memory, that you talked about your time there, a like professor that you had, so if you can kind of, uh, I guess, uh, let us know who that is and kind of tell us about how he helped you. And then my second, uh, second question would be about um, I guess it's not really about the tweet, which I felt the same exact way when you tweeted. It. Like it, it kind of made me feel um, like I like I had similar feelings um, as far as what you said. So I guess another question I would think about is when it goes to first take. Uh, I guess what would be the kind of differences um, or I guess adjustments when it comes to I guess the six because I feel like it's like different planning. Um, because that's the kind of the time when I didn't have a job, so I used to just sit at home and watch So yeah, I think those are the two questions I have, is one about Central Florida, and then one about uh, the difference between the six and that's, first state.
2: And you said with Central Florida, you asked me specifically about a professor?
0: I, could, I, I feel like in the past, like at Michigan State, I, I saw you uh, speaking there, and you
2: were saying about somebody Yeah, maybe Florida. I was referring to, because I, I was an adjunct um, at uh, University of Central Florida for uh, two years, and so, I could have been talking about Dr. Keith Harrison, who uh, this is part of the the DeVos um, School of uh, Sport and Society, run by Dr. Richard Lapchick, who is one of the foremost civil rights leaders in his whole family, he's an amazing person, has done a lot, has been on the forefront of fighting for equality, um, gender equality, racial equality, like both uh, uh, Dr. Harrison and Dr. Lapchick. Are um, close friends of mine, and, and certainly somebody who uh, both of whom I still have a, a good relationship with. And when I was living full time in Orlando, uh, were kind of instrumental in in me embracing the community, fitting in there, and, and that sort of thing. So it may have been that, may have been those two. You know, you may you may have heard about. Now, as for your second question. We're, was the question just about the differences between you said first take and the six? Is that what Right, because
0: he started asking
1: kind
2: of about like the past as far as your time on the six, and that's kinda like their hand Yeah, he yeah, was saying the difference in format and style or like oh. the purposes of both shows. Oh okay, so um you know, as anybody's seen first take it's, it's a, it's uh it's somebody um at the <laughs> <laughs> It, that never, get, that's never not funny. Right, never is right. that uh, that's the show of competitive talking? Right. <laughs> okay. Pretty much, that's a good <laughs> way to it. Competitive yeah. talking, and uh, I, you know, I did the show for many years when Skip was there, and um, you know, it is it's set up to for attention, right? Mm-hmm. Is that like, that's not to say when I say set up, I don't mean you you're being told your viewpoint or there's staging anything, but. The, the trick of the show is that they're trying to to get, you know, flashpoints. Right. You know, get you to flashpoints. The, the six, and this was, I think, why, you know, it was a bit of an odd fit for Mike and I to be on that eventually, um, is there is an expect, expectation that people have when they hear SportsCenter. You think news, highlights, that's what it's meant to you, most of you, you guys, your whole life. But the thing that makes being at six o'clock really tricky: what am I showing you that you haven't seen? Everything happened the night before. Right. I don't have anything to show you that's about to happen. You know, um, there are certainly, uh, you know, sure you have your day baseball and maybe some clips that go viral, but there's nothing to show. Right. And so it makes it a bit of a, a, a it's been a, a bit of a trouble spot for the network right. for years now because of that. And so Mike and I, the original plan, what they wanted us to do was bring over how we discuss things from his and hers. And the funny thing was that we would often run into people in public and they would say, oh, I love you guys, I love your chemistry, really loved his and hers, I don't like you at six o'clock. I'm like, why don't you like us at six o'clock We the same people? But they had been mentally programmed that when I turn on SportsCenter, I need to see this. Even if I've seen right. it 30 times, this is what I need to see. And so, it wasn't, I guess, in hindsight, it wasn't surprising that they wanted to evolve the show back into the traditional sports center. Right. The tough thing about that, and this is just a challenge, linear TV faces in general, is that, you know, younger the younger audience does not process television that way. Right. The younger audience, they're interested in sports culture. They want to know um, LeBron and the skittle shoes he wore or, you know, why he's right. so tight and like, all right. those other things. Right. They want to know about the culture and the conversation happening outside of the game. Right. But traditional sports fans don't. Right. So it's sort of like, which audience do you double down on? Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, once the show moved away from our commentary with each other, uh, we were unhappy. And uh, I understood, as I told them, uh, you know, behind closed doors. I'm not talking out of school because I've said this many times before. Uh, I know sports center needs to be sports center, but I need to be me, and these two ain't right. on the same page. So right. I need to be back to doing what you guys hired me to do, right. and I couldn't do that at six o'clock.
1: Right. Thank you. Last question.
0: Hey. Uh- Huge fan of your rise to prominence over the past few years. Uh, it's also awesome that a few minutes ago you mentioned that you and your good college friend launched a production studio together. A company, uh, not studio. Uh, no, production <laughs> company. Oh, sorry. that's
2: how rumors get started. People thinking, you know, I got a uh, lot somewhere. I'm like.
0: I <laughs> uh, but, I mean, you said you've been writing your entire life. Uh, when are you going to publish a book if you <laughs> haven't already? Well, and, uh, you know. If you are, I can tell you all my secrets. <laughs> if, if if there was an athlete or sports figure uh, that you would write a book on or work on a you know some sort of feature film on, who would
2: it be? Uh, to be honest, I don't want to do a book with an athlete. Um, it, I've had the opportunity to do that, or um, or
0: I guess a topic in sports in general.
2: I actually don't want to write a sports book. <laughs> I don't, um, and, it, and it's not because it's not compelling material. So I'm understanding your question. Trust me, the book proposal I'm working on has nothing to do with any of the, the topics that you 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 mentioned. It's a little more personal than that, um, and I've always wanted to write fiction too. That's the other thing. Uh, so, in terms of working with athletes. Um, you know, uh, I actually think um, and he has a production companies that he's really uh, he's been hugely successful. But I'd love to see LeBron in like a buddy comedy. <laughs> you know, you saw the train wreck, he's actually really funny. Is he's cap- he being cast with Janet Tatum on an upcoming film? Uh, is he? I was like, he may, he may be, but he's somebody I see with great comedic potential because uh, he is both in front of the camera and behind the, the camera, um, you know, really, really funny. Um, you know, there's a lot of different athletes who have personality that you probably would never guess that <laughs> would have those kind of, you know, personalities. Like, you no, know, Steph Curry's kind of funny too. Yeah. Is that a? I <laughs> I know he is a certain persona. You know, I, I don't know, uh, people acted as if the world was gonna end, end because he swore the other night. <laughs> like y'all know, he uses swear words. It does, it does happen. But there's, the stuff that I'm doing with the production company, I can tell you, 90% of it has nothing to do with sports. Um, it's uh, a lot of it is on telling our stories, telling different stories about Black women in particular, uh, which is a, a passion of mine, and. Um, you know, also about our communities. Um, so, uh, you'll see. You'll see. Awesome. <laughs> yes. All right. No, I'm done. Okay. I'm
1: done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we gotta go. We're out of time. Give it up for Janelle. Williams.
2: having that information, where can they find you? Oh, uh, just my first and last name. It's just like that's it on Twitter, I'm at Jamel Hill. I'm at Jamel Hill literally everywhere. So I don't have like numbers and, you know, different signs or whatever. So, uh, yes, it's pretty easy to find me. Okay, awesome. And you can find me.
1: There'll still be time. To mingle, to connect with people, to network. There will still be Hennessy available. You see all the Hennessy in the bag. Uh, anything is possible. any and everything. All of that. Um, and I do actually have one question as we leave. But you can find me, uh, Julie Mitchell, at All Things Mitch on Twitter and Instagram at All Things Mitch. Uh, very active. One thing we didn't touch on as we leave is a lot of people don't know what their mission is or what their purposes and Will Smith uh, describe it as, think about the thing you do most naturally that impacts the most amount of people. That's how you know what your, what your purpose is, right? So think about the thing you do most naturally that impacts the most amount of people. But for you, for people who are saying, whether they know a little bit, I want to be in sports, media, or whatever, finding out what that thing is, what that purpose or your mission is, like what would be your advice to them? Um,
2: it's like, it's the old guidance counselor question. Uh, what would you, do for free, mm. yeah. So, I, like I, that's what I said. I wrote my whole life, right? You know, so I've always, i obviously written when I wrote for free, and I still wanted to be a sports writer. Even though my senior year in college, time every year they put out top hundred professions, right? They rank them right. based off opportunity and money. Journalist was third from the bottom. Average right. salary was nineteen thousand dollars a year. <laughs> and I still wanted to be a journalist, which lets you know how so ridiculous hilarious. I was, because uh-huh. I was hustling backwards. <laughs> I was like, damn, college is twenty five grand a year, so how is this possible? I remember when they used to
1: tell me, they used to say, because uh, I didn't, I, w- I didn't get into literature until I got into college. Like I wasn't thinking about that, but they used to tell you you'd be broke, like an artist, yeah, I like Never
2: got into this job yeah. to make money, and I thought, I thought I was killing the game because my first job out of college. I made twenty-two grand. I was like balling.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
2: I beat that nineteen 000. It right, tell me nothing. So, but I also along those same lines, and we all went to college with, uh, or know people like this. It's not it's not just limited to college. The people who pick professions based off how much money they can make—that's a surefire way to be unhappy. Because I firmly believe if you have a passion for it you'll be good at it, and you will make a lot of money. Absolutely. Or make enough money, or whatever right. you consider to be a lot. You will be financially successful if the passion is there, because you're going to co-work people, um, you're going to stay committed and dedicated, and all those things will come. Hence why I said, love the process, screw the results. Great way to end. Thank, Great. You. Thank you, shout-out to different <laughs> A shout-out to Kim I mean, here, he has the
3: 3 shirt.